We welcome to the microphone Dave Sander. He's the director of Erie County's Office of Drug and Alcohol Use. And thank you, Dave, for coming out to, to, to talk with us here. Sure. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. We're, we're a family show. We like to kind of get origin stories. Dave, did you grow up here in Erie or how'd you get here? I am. I'm a lifelong Erie resident, minus a couple of years working out of town and yeah. you know, three years in Pittsburgh and other parts of Pennsylvania. But yeah, I'm lifelong. What high school? Uh, Cathedral Prep. All right. Rambler. Okay. Um, so so uh, maybe just kind of get a general sense. Um, uh, wh- where are we at with the opioid epidemic here in Erie? Is it decreasing, increasing? Is it about the same as it been the last few years? Well, the numbers that we're getting right now uh, for 2018 overdose deaths support that we are uh, improving uh, from where we had been in 2017. 2017 was our all-time high number of overdose deaths, uh, including opioids and all other substances, when we reached about 124. In 2018, we dropped to about 70, excuse me, 78 overdose deaths. And uh, um, any idea... How many have happened already? Is this a monthly tracker thing, or uh, it, not, not really? Be, no. Not to be deep no. into the metrics, but uh, we did have a drop from from twenty eighteen uh, from from, from twenty seventeen to twenty eighteen. Yeah, okay. and it had been a pretty much a continual ten year rise for the past ten years. Okay, and and uh, what would you attribute the drop? Well, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, as a community, we've just really come together to address the issue of. Uh, Things such as Narcan distribution, uh, warm handoff program, uh, where we meet overdose survivors in the hospital and get them directly into treatment, uh, community education forums, and we've just really hit a lot of community education uh, for the past couple of years, and prevention in the school, prevention efforts. Okay. So let's let's kind of knock that, mm-hmm. that down a little bit here. Let's start at the end. Um, what, do you, what kinds of uh, uh, educational efforts in the schools uh, is uh, drug and alcohol doing to to, to stave off uh, as somebody getting into an opioid situation? Uh, we we contract with a number of providers that work with elementary, middle, high school, and even college students, uh, and they teach uh, prevention skills, uh, educational skills, and then they also work with parents at, at the young, younger grades. So we have like a project home front where. Uh, trained uh, facilitators uh, communicate with the parents to teach them how to communicate uh, with their kids about the dangerous drugs and alcohol and gambling and all the other vices that are out there that could lead somebody down the wrong path. Like, maybe what do we, I, I guess it, it would be interesting to know what, what are some of those communication skills? Like, what would you, what would you teach me as a parent of a young one? You know, well, I mean, I don't do this. I don't do the actual right. training myself, but yeah. Okay. So, um, but I mean, I would imagine it's it's just uh, to have the conversation, having the conversations, keeping it yeah. in front of people, people don't right? have the conversations. This is kind of interesting to, to hear. And then to go from there, you're talking about community outreach. And I, I, I have a uh, I have a question regarding that. Uh, when I went to uh, Kathy Dahlkemper's opioid summit, I want to say 2016, maybe uh, maybe it was 2017. Anyway, um uh, a lot of the presentations and the testimonies that were there talked about folks kind of almost accidentally becoming addicted to opioids. Can you speak to that? Is that is that uh, what are the different routes, I guess, um, that you see? We hear a lot of that. Uh, we hear a lot where kids were are introduced to drugs as early as 12, 13 years old and uh, people that 
do succumb to opioid addictions actually start their first opioid at the age of like 13, 14, 15 years old after being introduced to a drug or substance. And typically, from what we're told, it is uh, it's a familial or a friend relationship where they get the substance from. Uh, but it also can be from like an injury and yeah, get addicted right from painkills. Right. That's from what start. we were. That's yeah. where some of the some of the you know what was some some of the presentations were saying. My my son had a uh, wisdom teeth pulled out. He took uh, oxycodone or something like that and uh, just had the chemistry in his body that instantly addicted him. Is, uh, is that a rare thing? I mean, what do we know about all that? Uh, no, that's not a rare thing. And I think that's part of the reason why there's all the litigation now against the pharmaceutical companies mm. because that was inappropriately marketed. And they say, folks, that is uh, that on prescriptions for opioids, as short as 30 days or 90 days can, can become addicted. Wow. So if you have that trigger in your brain, if you have that chemistry, that makes you susceptible to that. That's a very real thing. I wonder if there's any screening. I guess, I guess maybe I'm asking a, a, just a, a question in the cloud here, but is there screening that would say, hey, this one is, you know, this one's more susceptible and we need to be really careful with, you know, just with medication, you know? Yeah, not to my awareness, other yeah. than if you go into like the familial history and if there's a family history of addiction, then I think there might be a more of a fear for somebody within the family because there, there is a link. It's not all fam- family or genetic, but it is social type things as well, behavioral things. But there is definitely a clear genetic link. Well, we're talking to Dave Sander. He is the director of Erie County's Office of Drug and Alcohol Abuse, uh, of Alcohol Use. If you want to uh, ask a question, our number uh, is available to you, 814-679-1080, 679-1080. And so I want to go to that very first thing you mentioned, which was Narcan. And uh, again, lots and lots of press. Can we start from the beginning with Narcan? What is Narcan and what does it actually do? Narcan will stop an overdose from occurring. It actually works in the brain. It'll stop uh, the the effects of the opioid instantly. So if you, it's like your high is essentially over. As soon as this stuff hits your brain or your veins, however it's administered to you, we typically use the nasal spray that you spray up somebody's nose. But as soon as you do it, it will stop and it will bring you out of out of the high and put you into an immediate withdrawal. So it stops the chemical process. It stops the, the it's like receptor. An imme- it's an immediate uh, response by your brain. Really fast, yes. Really, really fast. Sometimes it takes two one or two doses and depend, you know, with the fentanyl, all the stuff that's out there. I mean, I'm hearing reports that people have to use one kit, two kits, you know, three kits, four kits uh, to wake them out just because of the drugs that are out there. In some cases are so strong um, that it takes multiple hits of Narcan before it brings them out of that overdose. Unreal. So let me understand this. Let's say uh, an emergency responder is called. You know, maybe somebody's just on the side of the. I mean, what's a typical scenario here? Maybe there's maybe no typical scenario, but somebody encounters someone who's overdosed and they call nine one one. How much time is it take for Narcan to still work and, and save that person vis a vis? You know that they, they would would expire. I guess I've heard minutes. I've heard four minutes, six that, minutes, it has ten to be minutes. That quick. It, it has to be pretty quick. Yeah, and that's why they're handing out Narcan. To families of addicts, is that correct? Pretty much, yeah. We're all first responders, law enforcement agencies, uh, volunteer fire departments. We're giving out to any community group that may have contact with folks that uh, may be 
have a potential overdose schools, uh, but yeah, family members as well. We're doing a lot of community trainings. So if you have a family member, get to one of our community trainings and get some free Narcan. How much is that stuff? Uh, typically uh, seventy dollars uh, for, for a two, dose. Yeah, oh. well, two, for two doses. For two doses. Now, like that's if not you, that's not terrible. Now, if you go to your pharmacy, the first time I got it, I I got it from a, a Frontier Pharmacy, and I got a uh, ten kit ten shots. I am shots for nine dollars. Wow. Yeah. So it depends on your insurance and stuff, but yeah. uh, the nasal spray is a mu- more expensive version okay. of it, so you don't have to mess around with the needle or anything like that. Is it almost being treated now as Kind of like having an EpiPen around. It really is. I mean, as if it's if you have somebody that you know is addicted to opioids, it's you need to have it. Like if you know somebody that has, uh, whether it's anaphylactic shock or whatever, you have to have your medical device immediately handy at all times to bring them out. Well, Andy, I want you to come in for a second. Um, uh, now, is this a, is this a scenario where these kinds of tools would be available at the mission and in other agencies that you work with? Yeah, I think it's increasingly uh, common uh, organizations that work with individuals that, you know, often like shelters, those kind of things. But I I think still we're finding that, you know, people not having them available. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so I I think because the awareness and that it's intentional to get it out there uh, and have it available. And it's crucial. Like you said, it's minutes um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, people that we ha- have worked with that, um, have gone back out, have, we starting we, to use again or something start to use again. And it's, uh, one of the things that they say is difficult is because then, you know, somebody builds up a tolerance, then they go into recovery, uh, but their tolerance isn't the same. But if they yeah. go back out and use, oftentimes they go back to the amount they were using prior to their addiction and it, they're not used to that. And so they, they expire. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such a, t- such a difficult subject. Um, you know, so you've got such situations where, I mean, I mean, let's just unpack what you, you've been telling us, Dave, is that um, you have situations where a, a child's brought up in a kind of a drug rich environment, if you will, where it's, where it's just not a, not a safe place for for kids, and so they have access to uh, narcotics. They have a- in, um, and then they they might start using at like you said, what young is thirteen? Yeah, that's what they report to us. That's quite and, frequently and, when they say their first exposure to it is. And then there's this there's this other uh, other pathway where someone's uh, chemistry, uh, their body chemistry is just just susceptible for addiction, and so that initial exposure perhaps to some kind of um you know opioid uh, pill that maybe they they take for a, a leg injury you know they break a leg or they they have um uh you know uh you know dental surgery and they they become addicted um what, i would say too joel that every, every everybody is capable of getting addicted it's just that there are some people that are wired in a way that's that it happens right. Really, quicker. really fast. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, when I've when I've had surgery and I was pre- prescribed uh, hydrocodone, um, you don't you just have it in your mind that you're going to try to get off of it as soon as you can. First off, it really messes you up. Yeah, your whole body gets messed up. And a lot right? of people get uh, it makes like for me, it makes me ill. 
you know, like yeah. nauseous and stuff. But see, that's a great thing. I mean, if you're somebody that gets ill from it, you are immediately have adverse consequences of taking yeah. that medication. You're less likely to right. keep using and abusing it. So, they, and they, I know when my wife had surgery, they they used uh, fentanyl. Uh, that's incredible. Which she was like, I, I don't know. <laughs> She's like, I, like she didn't like the other stuff, made her sick. But fentanyl, she was like, I. I can tell why people would get addicted to that. Yeah, yeah. I she, mean, it's, she had a really it's a whole different experience. She had a really get. So, th- so are we saying that there is a there is a proper use of fentanyl in some cases? There Dave? is. I mean, yeah. There, there's a. Uh, it's an FDA approved drug, uh, and there's all different levels of fentanyl, and it's a animal tranquilizer as well. Quite common in veterinary clinics for large right. animals. Let, let's talk about the the whole gateway thing. That how. People get to opioids. Um, there, there's. Uh, I'm just gonna. I'm gonna just be open about that. We need to have a transparent conversation. So right now, there's a listening tour going on about um, recreational marijuana, and depending on who you read, some people say it is a alternative to opioid addiction. Some people say it's a gateway to uh, further addiction, whether it is opioids or or cocaine or so you know harder drugs. Uh, Dave, do you have an opinion on that? Uh, I just think it's, you know, it's a very dangerous road to go down to when we're talking about developing brains in our community. So to allow access, and I know they wouldn't allow access to kids under 18 or 21, whatever the law would be set at, but it, I believe it would be more readily available uh, should it become recreational. And then so more kids will have access to those types of things. But does, but does uh, just the use of... Of drugs lead to other drugs in a general I mean, in a general sense. Is that what the social science is telling us? From what people come into our office, nobody starts out taking fentanyl. Nobody starts out taking heroin. Nobody starts out even taking pills. Uh, although more and more you are hearing that they are mm-hmm. taking pills. They they take them from a parent or grandparent or an uncle or a brother or whatever that has a sports injury and they hear how nice they are. Yeah. But typically when people come into our office, uh, they say they start out on alcohol or marijuana, the most readily available things out there. So six, uh, six, seven, nine, 10, 80 is the local number. If you want to uh, ask a question of uh, Dave Sander from the Erie County office of drug and alcohol use, or if you want to weigh in on your experiences with, um, um, you know, folks close to you, uh, with opioid addiction. Uh, it's a very special program here on the Joel Natale show. The, um, you know, th- what is the infrastructure now uh, from the county level for um, kind of, uh, you know, because there's been some success. So we've been doing the public outreach. We've been uh, handing out the Narcan um, and that that's being paid for by the state for the by most the part. State, yeah, no yeah. County dollars are used for that. Okay, so that and that is a, I mean, that's a huge and a huge deal. And that, to me, as a casual observer, that's been ramped up as about as fast as I could ever think something like that that could be ramped up. I mean, literally, uh, we we found out about the solution of Narcan, and it was in the cops' hands one year. And it was in everybody else's hands the next year. I mean, this is talking 24 months, perhaps, at this point. Yeah, absolutely. We got recognized as the centralized coordinating entity for the county. Uh, So they started giving it to us to get out into the community, to the law enforcement, to the first responders, and now to the community members as quickly as we possibly could. 
I, I, I want again, we're, we're, we're asking tough questions. One of the things, again, that you hear in, as a meme, that this is just an excuse. Uh, by having Narcam out there, uh, users are using it as an excuse that they can continue to use, and they know that somebody's going to be backing them up with, with, the, with the anecdote, if you will. Um, is that real, or is that uh, kind of a fake meme? I believe it to be mostly a fake meme, but I have heard stories that people at parties know that somebody in the group has a Narcan kit with them. So they're less afraid to do the drugs, but they would not not do the drugs otherwise if there was a Narcan kit not unavailable. Uh, so I don't I don't think that's real. Nobody wants to die when they're taking drugs. I mean, some people say it's a sign of other things, mental illness of suicide wish. But people when they you really talk to them, nobody wants to die. They they want to they want to stay alive. And the Narcan's an opportunity to engage them and get them into treatment at some point. And it, and it is really offensive to me as a as a neighbor that people are saying things like um, let let the junkies go. Why are we spending this money? on the junkies. It just is extremely offensive as a, as a member of the human race mm-hmm. uh, to that, say, if we have an, if we have an opportunity to save a life, why don't we do it? And, uh, the people that say that, say that until it's their son or daughter or friend or loved right. one. And then they, they quickly the, stop saying it because they know, I think you said this at the beginning of the, uh, of the show that is no respecter of economic class. You know, the individuals that I'm talking to, sports injuries, people that have access, you know, kids and middle class that, you know, parents, or you said grandparents, if it's around and they move from the pills to like things like heroin and things because it's cheaper when mm. they, when it's moved its way into an addiction and they've run out of money or they burned all their bridges or they lost their job. Now, how do I get it at a less price? So. Yeah, it, it's uh, it it is a complicated situation, and again, every individual is different. But if we can, if we like, like the county has done, and I have to ha- have my hat, hat off to County Executive Dahl Kemper because she has, uh, and, and on our program, the the very first week of the show, she said, "This is what I'm running on is to combat the opioid addiction." So when she ran for re-election, this was part of her. Her top, um, uh, you know, uh, platform or yeah. messages, you know, was was to make sure that uh, we do something about it. And obviously, the uh, the evidence is in that there are less people dying of opioid addiction in Erie County. We have Dave Sander from from uh, the Erie County Office of Drug and Alcohol Use. These obituaries that are in the paper, where um, the parents are saying, you know, I need to tell my child's story, you know. Uh, because it might help somebody else and it might be an encouragement to other parents with with addicts. Um, the, 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 the question I have is, um, what do you think next steps are coming? Is there any, any new uh, treatment plans or any, any new things that the county is looking at? Uh, or is it kind of, you know, we're just going to kind of intensify our efforts? Well, we have a couple of things going on. We hope to increase prevention efforts and we hope to really make prevention more specific to 
all the drugs, uh, particularly the gateway drugs, but then the ones that lead to harder drug use uh, in the schools. And we also hope to in, improve our case management services, expand the services that we offer to people that come into our office for help uh, so that we're not just screening and assessing and referring them into treatment, but then we're working with them uh, throughout their recovery to maintain them into treatment longer, help address their other life issues that are preventing them from successfully completing treatment. Um, and we continue to work with uh, education and to reduce the stigma in Erie County uh, that it, th- this is possible in anybody's family. I get calls all the time from friends, uh, from family, uh, how destructive it is. So we're trying to make it so that people are less afraid to talk about it by that. So we can increase the awareness. Last 30 seconds. Is there a, a mentoring element? Is there N.A.? I mean, I mean, is there things that people can do to really try to to work on 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 getting out of this lifestyle absolutely and we're utilizing us what's called certified recovery specialist in that regard as well these are people that have lived uh uh, addiction and now we're in recovery, sustained recovery, and they have been they're trained and they work with the uh, individuals that are suffering from addiction now, and we're having some pretty good success with that as well. I appreciate you taking the time, Dave Sanner from the he's the director of the Erie County Office of Drug and Alcohol Use. Give our best to County Executive Dahl Kemper and and uh, thank you for all that you're doing and your office is doing to to uh, stem this scourge uh, of our community of our neighbors. It's so important. It really, really is. It's a very important program today as we talk about, uh, talk about the, uh, uh, the nature of the opioid epidemic here in Erie County. And uh, uh, way too many people are, are passing away due to drug al- uh, overdoses. But we're starting to see some, some turnaround. And uh, it's because of the efforts of good people like Jennifer Esper. She's the president and director of the Esper Treatment Center and Joe Courier, certified recovery specialist at the Esper uh, Treatment Center. And of course, the work at the City Mission and Andy Kerr, uh, who's uh, bringing up the rear here. Uh, <laughs> Always. <laughs> welcome, folks, for being with us. <laughs> Always. All right. So, again, we, we like to say this is a family show. So, Jennifer, did you grow up around here or are you I born did. and bred? Yeah. Born and reared in Erie, Pennsylvania. All right. And what the high school? I went to McDowell. Okay. High school graduated early 90s. Okay. Yeah. You probably know some of my nieces. Absolutely. Yeah. The Natalies, right? Yep. They're, 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 they're like they're parsley. They're like parsley. Yeah. They're everywhere. <laughs> like the Espers, right? Like the Espers. <laughs> and, and Joe, how about, uh, are you a local guy? Yes, I am. Born and raised. Terrific. All right. We're just positioning mics here. Okay. So, um, all right, so let's let's talk about where we're at as a as a as a county with opioid addiction. What, how would you describe it if you if you had to say what where, where do we stand uh, as far as the addiction itself and the number of people it affects? Um, and and we spoke about this earlier. I just kind of want to give a, a brief history, and I guess maybe yeah. real quick, if we could just talk about sure. the paradigm shift in addiction. Okay. Okay. Um, I've been doing this for 18 years. I've been in this field for 18 years. And when I started back in 2002, opioid addiction was just pills. It was all Oxycontin. It was all Vicodin. Back then, they didn't have the deterrence in those pills as they do now. So people were crushing them, snorting them, injecting them. Back then, an Oxycontin uh, 80 milligram was $80, a dollar a milligram. But you wow. have people that were taking 10 to 20 pills a day. So $80 times 10 or 20. 
Right. They're spending that a day. But now with pharmaceutical companies, and again, 18 years later, they've added deterrence to these medications. They make them less appealing now. You can't compromise the integrity. You can't shoot them. You can't inject them. So that's good, right? But back then, 18 years ago, anybody coming into my agency, that they weren't addicted to heroin. They weren't. It was all pills. Uh, a lot of it was pain pills. Uh, someone had a surgery. They had legitimate pain. They had pathology. But again, unfortunately, they were on it for an extended amount of time. They got dependent and or addicted to it. So then you have the paradigm shift where you can't access those pills anymore. You can't possibly spend $2,000 a day on your yeah, addiction. You have yeah. a, a friend, a so-called friend that comes up to you. Hey, I have heroin. It's super cheap. It's about $5 a stamp. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's a stamp is just what they call it. That's the nomenclature. It's $5. So cost versus benefit, debits and credits, $800 a day or $20 a day. Right. So that's how that kind of all rolled into what we are into now. As far as the potency back 18 years ago, the heroin on the streets was about 60 percent pure. Now it's about 90 to 100 percent pure. And on top of that, you throw in the Internet and the dark web and you have everything. Everything is accessible to everyone. You can find out how to make it. You could buy the supplies online, have it delivered to you. So that's really, it's been such a shift from 18 years ago. And so the barriers have come way down. Way down. Way down. It's scary. It's scary. You could actually, if you were to type it into your uh, MacBook right there, you would get a recipe for it oh and directions on how to purchase it. Oh my gosh. It's scary. Yeah. So that's kind of where we're at. And so yeah. the, the, with the barriers down... We're, we're finding more addicts, right? Correct. Would you say, though, that um, because, it, it, I mean, do, we've always had addiction, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. I mean, opiate addiction has been around for centuries. Right. It's nothing new. It's nothing new. But the, is, it, is it a higher percentage of the population, or is it because of the potency that we're seeing these overdoses? Well, I think... Any sort of addiction, alcoholism, anything, it's so taboo. It's just something that you don't speak about. It's a shame-based disease, really. Who comes out openly and says, hey, I'm addicted to alcohol, I'm addicted to cocaine, I'm addicted to opiates. I think the reason why there's so much emphasis on it the past five years, people are dying because of Mm -hmm. what they're, they're mixing the fentanyl with it. They're mixing the car fentanyl in it. But what it's doing, too, is the people that are overdosing and dying, some of them I had no idea or they just have this access to stuff. So it was taboo back then. It's not so much taboo now, to be quite honest with you. Um, I, it's horrific nonetheless. But I think the reason why it's getting such a spotlight again is because it's decimating our population. Right. Yeah, it's, it's just making impact. It's making it worse. And back then it was a little more in vogue. There were pills. There were, you know, it wasn't as taboo and it wasn't as accessible as it is now. All right. I want to ask you one more question about the pills itself. Are there people that are functioning on uh, on a hydrocodone or, or yeah. some kind of a of an opioid pill, kind of just to get through the day, but they're not in, at risk, if you will, of ODing? Well, so there's How dependency. That, so yeah. you can take pain pills and be dependent upon pain pills. Okay. Right. Now, when you stop taking those pain pills. 
you're going to go through withdrawal. You're going to feel those symptoms, right? But when you're addicted to those pills, it's your behaviors that make you do anything and everything to get those pills or the heroin or your alcohol or your cocaine, stuff so, like so that. So you're it's saying the behaviors. that you're, there is a behavioral difference from an addict to somebody who depends on pain pills Correct. to get through the day. Correct. Okay. Just so, just so that we understand yeah. this, right? That's, um, a good, that's a good distinction. I, I don't think a lot of people they don't understand, even with like alcohol, the difference between abusing it and sure. being an alcoholic. And any difference. sort of addiction, you talk about a disease that takes an amazing person and turns them into a real jerk within uh, three months. With opiates, it's even quicker. So again, you take a disease. Cancer doesn't do that. Cancer's awful. Yeah. But addiction, again, is the only disease that I know that turns an amazing person into a real jerk mm. in a relatively short amount of time. Mm. And it's those behaviors that they exhibit. All mm. right. So... Um the uh so all right so what are what are the next what are the next steps so how do you how do you identify within yourself that you are an addict that you would need help or does it have to be somebody else that guides you that says i think you need you need to find some help well i think that joe i think joe's the best equipped to answer that because again he's got an amazing story and um i was telling him earlier he's He's a great guy, and he has such a different lens on this as opposed to me. Sure. Right? Um, I think with the behaviors, we do assessments at, a, at my facility every day. So you take somebody, the behaviors, you have a big, nice, strong guy come down there, and he'll sit there doing an assessment saying that the behaviors that he would have to engage in to secure his drugs or whatever, wow. those are dangerous behaviors, prostitution, um, things that you would never even think of. And, you know, those are the behaviors. So, Joe, do you want to tell your story, kind of um, how how you've come to today? I mean, start from the beginning, really. From the beginning? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I started out like everybody else and, you know, started out smoking marijuana. It just progressed and progressed. And, you know, then it was opiates and full-blown opiates and, you know, just like she said, did whatever I could to. I'm going to stop you there. So you, in your mind, the marijuana was a gateway to yes. to the to this stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, just just establishing that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. And you know, and just it progressed, and it just kept on progressing as I got older. And like she said, I would do whatever it would take, you know, to get the drug. And eventually. I think you need to tell them like what what behaviors were you engaging in? <laughs> More or less criminal behaviors than anything, you know, mm-hmm. breaking the law and. You know, and just basically, yeah, I would go in to do anything I could to get the drug, and that's pretty much. Did did you find yourself uh, kind of being in harm's way or violent behaviors in that kind of time of your life? I mean, I guess I'm wondering, you know, when when somebody's looking for, uh, you know, going, you know, breaking in to to try to fund their habit, how violent does it get? I mean, I wouldn't say I got that violent, but I mean, I would break I'm in. Just, I'm just saying the context that you were yeah, in. Yeah, I mean, breaking <laughs> into houses and, you know. And, oh, yeah. You know, people could be there, and, you know, if not, if they were, then just either left or tried to get what I had to get and left. Okay. Okay. Um, so, so when did you find out that 
you needed to to do something about this um when i was 22 and got arrested okay yeah let's look can we talk can we stop and talk about that a, a second incarceration is, is not rehabilitation it's not but you go cold turkey like real quick huh? so it but is the situation uh jennifer that um that once once you time out of your incarceration oftentimes the attic is going right back to the context yeah absolutely and what dave was saying earlier uh about the overdose so if you have someone who's been in uh shooting heroin the same amount let's say they go to jail for 10 months they come out they think they need to shoot that same amount after five days your tolerance if you will to opiates goes down exponentially okay so when you come out of prison if you were to shoot what you were shoot, if you were to shoot up what you were shooting up prior to incarceration, that's going to kill you. Period. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Right, it's scary. So when you think, I guess maybe we can do the whole. If you were eating or taking ten pills a day before you went to jail, ten oxy's a day. If you came out and took those ten oxy's, you're going to overdose and die. Okay, because your tolerance is down. You haven't been exposed to that opiate for a very long time, so your tolerance goes down exponentially, even after five days. Again, just so I understand the physiology of what's going on here, is is it that the high is not strong enough, so then you add more rapidly? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm sorry I'm sounding so naive. No, I just you're don't asking underst- amazing questions. I just you really don't understand this, 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 this stuff. In- so, so basically, you might have started with a couple pills. Yes. And then you had to go more to get the high either more often or just... For it to even be effective, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, Joel, and if I could just add something really quick, and they're nailing all of this. The the other part problem with the prison thing is we know that if nothing changes, nothing changes, as we always say in in recovery. Uh, but this the things that in their life that made individuals use drugs or alcohol, marijuana, whatever, to cope with how life was, also have not changed. But a lot of people say prison was a was a turning point because it they did something from that point. The prison does have great programs for for people that do enter correctional mm-hmm. facilities. You know, they have therapeutic communities, treatment communities. Those mm-hmm. are really good. It's what you put into it, though. Yeah. It's yeah. it's really that kind of. Are you, you just going to go through the motions and this and that? Are you really going to mm-hmm. kind of absorb it and really let it resonate with you? You can't really break away. The behavior part of this and the physiology chemistry part of this, can you? So you can. I mean, we can talk about addiction and, you know, where it acts in your brain and and stuff like that. So our frontal cortex is what makes us us, Mm -hmm. right? Makes us great people. When you start abusing drugs or alcohol, your frontal cortex dies. Hence, you turn into a jerk, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. So then you're acting all in your midbrain. That's your fight or flight, right? your fight or flight. That's your midbrain. We're really not supposed to access that. We're supposed to access that when someone's got a gun to you, fight or flight. But when you abuse a pharmaceutical or when you abuse alcohol, you're always acting in your midbrain. It's always firing off. So when you use drugs or alcohol, it's quieting that midbrain down. You feel normal. Holy crap. But when it's not in your system anymore, it it manifests itself into criminal behavior, um, people doing whatever they need to do to not be sick so that they can feel normal. That's what it is. 
and that's it's yeah. That's it in a nutshell, really. That's the physiology part of this. Yeah, and again, it, I'm not. A, no, it, I'm not a physician. Right. However, um, well, I'm not a physician. I guess yeah. there's no preempting <laughs> that, right? I know a bunch of them, though. Right. Um, but that's we'll play one on that's TV. the. <laughs> I should or yeah, on radio. Right. Um, but addiction is that's it demystified. It's not. It's not trig. It's not quantum physics. Again, if people access scholarly articles on the internet, not blogs. Yeah. Let the record reflect. Don't access a blog. It's really just that. And again, it's not just opiates. It's with the drinking. It's with you know, stuff like that. We're talking to Jennifer Esper. She's the director and president of the Esper Treatment Center. Joe Courier, he's a certified recovery specialist at the Esper Treatment Center. We are talking about the opioid epidemic in Erie, and uh, we have with us uh, Jennifer Esper and uh, Joe Courier. They're from the Esper Treatment Center. Andy Kerr is with us from the City Mission and our regular um, uh, weighing in on this uh, conversation. And we've been talking uh, to Joe Courier about, you know, kind of your story, Joe. And um, um, as, as you became more addicted you had you you ended up doing more harmful behavior um and uh but then the crisis point hit you were incarcerated I was, you, well, actually i was not incarcerated okay but you were arrested yes, all right i was arrested so that was something that shook you up a, li- a little bit huh yes it did okay talk about that well um, got arrested for you know just gonna bring that right right up there buddy yeah um got arrested you know break it into a place and you know i really didn't know what I was gonna do, you know, I never had it happen, so I was kind of at the mercy of the law, you might as well say, and mm-hmm. you know, and just basically waited it out and kept on doing what I had to do every day until I got closer and closer to court, and you know, I uh, decided to, um, <clears throat> excuse me, enter into drug court. Okay, here in Erie, PA, my brother was in it, and you know, he was already getting treated treatment, and he said, you know, you gotta want it. And I wanted it and got in and, uh, you know, I just prevailed. You know, I went to school as I, you know, went into drug court and, you know, basically changed my life around and all thanks to, you know, treatment court and in Erie County. So that's amazing. The um, tell me the the impact of having loved ones and supporting people around you for as you're going through that process. Oh, it was great. I mean, I see my brother every day, you know, and. See, he was doing good, and I knew I could do it if pretty much if he could do it and put our minds together and went to meetings and did everything we could do and to stay out of trouble and, you know, stay clean. So so that is the behavioral part, right? I mean, uh, understanding that there has to be some kind of a will, that this is not just passive, that there needs to be an active uh, approach to this. Can you speak to this, Jennifer, as far as... You gotta kind of walk it like you talk it. And Joe's being really humble at this point, which is kind of frustrating to me. <laughs> <laughs> He's not giving you the full disclosure kind of like I want him to. But um, allow me to kind of expound upon that. Um, Joe's very committed to his recovery. Mm-hmm. What does recovery look like? It's not just stop using drugs or alcohol. You've got it's not to, just say it's no. It's not that. It's not just that because mm-hmm. there's other behaviors that you have to engage in. Um, one minute at a time, one day at a time. It's a fight. It's a constant fight. But what Joe has too, number one, he has a ton of tenacity. 
He does. I think he's great. I really do. He's got passion, but he, again, he also has that lens that I was here. I know exactly what you're going through, but I'm here now. I did my work. I still work at it. You have to put in your work. There's no, there's no silver bullet. There's no magic pill for you to guess what? I'm not addicted anymore. No. Um, no, you have to put in the work. You have to engage in meetings. You have to engage in treatment. A lot of what I see, too, and I'll do some assessments from time to time. It was last year I did an assessment on a, on a, a I call him a boy. He's only 21, but he's an adult. Mm-hmm. Uh, his mother shot him up with heroin when he was nine. Oh, my God. Oh, he's nine. And I have a son, and he's 12, and I'm going to get a little choked up. I actually got choked up, too, and I looked at him. I said, I, I'm a mother, and I have a son, and I'm sorry. And he looked at me, and it was so innocent. It really was. He says, no, I love my mother. He goes, I love my mother. I said, I, I know you do. I said, well, where's your mother now? Well, she died from an overdose. Hmm. Um, so that's a lot of trauma. I'm a yeah. mom. I could never imagine. Nine? Yeah. I mean, my son can barely spell, spell his name now, let alone me. And he's 12, hmm. let alone me sitting him down and doing something like that. That's hmm. trauma. That's something yeah. that you don't. Abuse. Right. Mm-hmm. But think about what happened to her, right. the mother. And, right. you know, the whole family of origin, that's pretty powerful, too. The genetic thing is mm-hmm. huge. Yeah. Um, but it's but Joe does the work. He does it every day. He does. It's not you wake up one day. Hey, I'm great. I don't need to go to meetings. Mm. Or I don't know. It's not. Can I ask a question, Joe? In that moment where you decided that you needed to do something about it, what uh, and you were surrounded, you said your brother, can you remember what, what was it that made you think I have to do, I have to get this right? Um, to be truthful, facing five years in, you know, the penitentiary. Yeah. I mean, 22 years old. Kind of scared straight. Kind of scared straight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. You didn't want that future. No. <laughs> We're glad to have with us uh, Jennifer Esper. She's the president and director of the Esper Treatment Center right there on 18th and Peach. Peach. And then Joe Courier, certified recovery specialist at the Esper Treatment Center. And and Joe, we, we were hearing your uh, your journey, your life story. And um, you the where we picked it up is that you were involved with drugs. You were getting into more uh, risky behaviors and you ended up getting arrested and uh, you decided to go to drug court. Yes. And uh, and that kind of was a turning point for you, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I mean, we uh, you know started out weekly going to see the judge, and you know he could tell if you're lying. You know, oh yeah. Anything you did, you get thrown in jail. So I mean, it was pretty much you had to work your recovery if you wanted it. So I mean, and you actually have to quantify your recovery. And how do you do that, Joe? You can ask me difficult questions. <laughs> so actually, when you're on drug court, drug court's an amazing program. What you have to do is remand to a facility and submit urine drug samples. Okay. Um, okay. To prove and to quantify that you're not abusing drugs or alcohol. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, um, so so uh, let's, you know what, let's take a phone call real quick. Somebody wants to ask a question and then and we'll go from there. So, uh, uh Caller, you are on the line with uh, the Joel Natale show on TalkEerie.com. Okay, that's me? Yes, sir. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I tuned you in driving across town, and it's an interesting topic. And I wanna, I'm going to come from a different angle here, and I am coming from I am totally ignorant 
of this kind of stuff. I mean, I, I know that there's problems with drugs and opioids and everything, but you're talking to someone who's 64 years old, and my addiction is about one beer every month. I mean, I, I still drink Kool-Aid, believe it or not, at the age of 64. So, you know, I'm totally on the other end of the spectrum of this, okay? And I did have one experience, however, and that was four years ago, four years ago in March, as a matter of fact, I had a total knee replacement. Mm -hmm. And I was told by everybody, you've got to stay on top of the pain. You've got to stay on top of the pain. So I'm like, well, okay, I don't want to have a lot of pain. So while I was in the hospital, they were handing me or giving me, and I was taking this Oxycontin stuff, you know, every few hours. And they gave me a, a big script for it. When I came home a couple of days later, and I was taking it at home, just as I had been taking it in the hospital. And after about a week or so, I really started feeling terrible. Mm -hmm. I mean, dizzy, lightheaded, nauseous, uh, just, you know, not making a whole lot of sense when I was talking. And we determined that it was this drug I was taking, these opioids. So I stopped taking them and, uh, and, and used, you know, other things just to, to deal with some of the, the, the pain as I recuperated. And it took maybe, I don't know, almost a week or so to kind of like get, you know, my head back together. But I came out of that experience and, and I've had, I've had a couple of friends that have said the same thing as well. They go, Oh, get me away from that stuff. It's terrible. And I came away from that experience thinking if it makes you feel that way, why would anybody even start to get that feeling, that experience of nausea and lightheadedness and dizziness. I mean, maybe it's completely different. And some people think they start out thinking it's the greatest thing on the planet. Let, let's let but Jennifer respond. You, yeah. Because she's able yeah, to. Yeah. My experience was just so bad. Go ahead. Well, I'm actually really happy that you had such a poor experience because guess what? Um, you're not addicted. And I think that's amazing. And, Unfortunately, more people don't have awful experiences like yours and have that awareness and just stop, right? Um, when people abuse prescription drugs or heroin, um, <clears throat> they get euphoric. They really like it. That's what they're getting at. So that's that's what they're chasing. People, are you saying some people? Are you saying some people? No, no. Are you saying some people start out taking it like from the get go? completely clean like I was and instead of feeling like I was they feel like this great euphoria absolutely. rather than the lightheadedness and the absolutely wow. and that is wow. the high like I, said, I come into this and that and that feeling the first time the first euphoric feeling they call it chasing the dragon they're always trying to chase that feeling they're never going to get that feeling back wow. but they continue to chase it and is that just a, a it's a physiology of that person's yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's just the, it's just their chemical makeup. Absolutely. So that's that's where we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, uh, thank God that you were not addicted, Colin. Yeah. Thank God you had an awful experience. Yeah. I think that's great. But I'm well. I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, uh, obviously, but, uh, I, I'm sorry. I, I your fell knee. Into the, 
What's that? He said, sorry about your knee, What's but that? I'm glad you're not addicted to opiates. So <laughs> you oh, had a actually, you have a happy ending. Having my, having my knee replaced was like one of the best things I've ever done, believe right. it or not. But uh, okay, well, at least that that kind of answered some of my questions because I didn't realize. I figured everybody would have had to have gone through how I felt. Right. And that's why it was so puzzling to me. It's like, why would you ever want to feel that way? Yeah. Well, and I appreciate you calling. You're doing your due diligence. You had a question and you're educating yourself. And I think that's great. So thank you. Thanks so much, All caller. Right. Well, appreciate you. it. You got it. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Just like we were saying a little earlier is that, uh, you know, uh, I didn't like what what the what the hydrocodone did to me. It, well, it, it makes was, you sick. And not yeah. all that not all opiates are created equal that way. Correct. When I when I had a knee surgery in '93 in the early '90s, that they, they gave me Demerol, and right. and I that was it was uh, it was great. I mean, it was a great. It, it, it was worked. there was no there was no sickness. There was, it was a completely different experience than like oxycodone or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, and again, pharmaceuticals now are, they're almost new and improved. So Demerol was great back in the day, right? But now we have Oxycontin, Opanas, we have Zohydra. Fentanyl, yeah. Um, it, there's no, it, they're like the superhumans of pharmaceuticals. So. Oh my gosh. Well, let's pick up, let's pick up Joe's story here. So, <laughs> sorry. So, no, and again, uh, thanks for your patience. She steals the spotlight. <laughs> I, do. I do. Or the mic. So, so, um, so. You're in ju- drug court. You're 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 doing the work. You are uh, pr- proving to the judge that you're staying clean. Uh, what what comes next? Basically, you go through three phases in drug court. And you first phase, you go see the judge every week, and you go to your meetings. You know, outpatient if you have to, that kind of stuff. Um, and then once you know, you put six months. If you prove yourself, they bump you up to the second phase. And so, I mean, you go six months doing the same thing, you know, see them biweekly, still doing what you're supposed to do. You get bumped up after six months and three months. And eventually, if, you know, you complete it, you, you graduate off of drug court, then you're on regular probation. Yeah, okay. And that's when, like, most of my stuff started again, because once I got on regular probation, they weren't giving me urine tests weekly. And then I, you know, I figured, oh, I can... You know, do a little bit here, a little bit there. Mm. And then it just kind of like gripped me again and sent me down hill and back at it like it was like it was yesterday. You know, mm. like it never went, went away. So what did you do after that, Joe? I pretty much, uh, I got through, you know, college that way, you know, doing pills every day. And, uh, you know, I ended up uh, graduating from getting signed off probation in 09. Graduated from college, then I got married, and then my wife told me that she was pregnant with our first child, and I pretty much knew that it was time to just nip it and get back to the meetings and do all you know I'm supposed to do, and that's what I did. And I uh, was always I always worked in kitchens, so I always was working in kitchen work, you know, cooking. And a couple of years ago, I just had a couple of friends close that died of overdoses and. I said, uh, I want to help out, and I do a, a counselor at the Esper Treatment Center, Carol. And I said, hey, uh, how would I, you know, how can I get into the field? And that's when I had to sit down with this one and <laughs> interview. <laughs> you know, and she, she's she been great. She's taught me a lot, and 
know, it's great to go in every day and give back and mm-hmm. you know, and nowadays though, I mean the the motivation to do anything with anybody getting off of drugs is not there like it was when I, you know, got off them. You know, you got to force them to go to a meeting. They don't, they just want to think it's going to fall in their lap and they're clean. And it's not that you got to, you got to want it. Yeah. I wanted to ask you what, what is the state of, of that brand new person who says, you know, I need to get some help. Um, you know, uh, are you seeing them, uh, Joe, are you seeing them, Jennifer? How does this work? I, I call myself the mama bear down there. I usually don't get involved unless I absolutely have to. Okay. Um, I don't, I don't get involved clinically. I just don't. Um, Joe sees mostly everybody and do they show up high sometimes? Of course. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. But again, we see them every day when they come to the facility, when we give them their medication, they come every day. Okay. So we always pick up. Correct. That kind of connection. They need a regiment. They need a schedule. And there's always, again, when you see somebody every single day, you can always pick up on a little nuance or some, hey, you're just not looking right. Mm -hmm. What's going on? And then, you know, Joe's great at that. He really is. He'll be like, hey, come here. What's going on? And things that they won't tell their counselor, they'll tell Joe. Mm -hmm. And Joe uh, is a champion for them. He's Papa Bear, I guess, in a manner (laughs) of speaking. He's shorter than me, though. Um, But he's... He can, what I don't see through my own very myopic lens, he sees and he can pick it out and he handles it. And it really resonates with the patients down there. It really does. Jennifer, when I saw you, um, I think it was, I think you were giving this kind of testimony uh, when I saw you down at the opioid summit that Kathy Dahlkemper had a couple of years ago. Um, You talked a bit about uh, environment and and get uh, and getting out of the context that led people to Absolutely. drugs. Um, so are, are you guys shipping people, eerie kids to say, you know what, you've got to go move somewhere else to get out of this environment. Um, for me, um, I don't, but again, it, it's a testament to what are you going to do for yourself? What are you going to do towards your recovery? Are you going to continue to expose yourself to these people, places and things and triggers and stuff like that? Or are you going to do a total 180, sell your car, get rid of your furniture, uh, find a new place to live? Are you going to do it that way? Or are you going to continue to expose yourself to this stuff? Because your net result is always going to be poor. You got to extract it. You got to get surgical with it. And um, there are a couple patients that have really inspiring stories. And they did exactly that. They got rid of their clothes. Their clothes were a trigger. Mm. Their car was a trigger. Their couch was a trigger. Uh, yeah. Uh, one of the hardest things I think for people is that those, you know, you, you, we don't, we always talk about people, places and things, right? Yeah. Uh, the people are often family members. Uh-huh. They're, they're, yeah. they're often the people that you, that you think care about you the most, but no one, if they're in addiction too, everyone is being controlled by the drug. No one is in control. So that's right. not really they're not loving you the way they would if they were in control of things. And then even too, even let's say you have a parent whose child is addicted, there's that codependent behavior Mm -hmm. that's just as addictive as the drugs, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's this whole family of origin. It's this cycle. And it just continues until you decide to not let it continue. We're uh, getting to the last uh, 10 minutes or so, and I want to make sure that we're talking about the hope side of this thing. So, um, you know, uh, 
obviously on a continuum, you were in in the roughest of, of situations, weren't you, Joe? Yes. And and now you're you're living in a in a loving family and and contributing to society and helping other people along. Uh, could you have ever thought that that uh, kind of that uh, you know the Emerald City was in front of you? No, not not when I was using. No, I just you know figured it was the drug and that was it. And but now it's you know I wake up every day. Still, might fall asleep a couple times, like Ben said. I mean, all the time. It's not just a couple; it's all the time. <laughs> but it, I mean, it's it's great to be able to go into work and you know see the faces and you know, like Jen said, I can tell if you know there is something wrong. Mm. I can pretty point out if they're mm-hmm. under the influence or if they're up to no good. I should say, and uh, you know, get them on the right track and you know, and just do what I got to do to get through the day and stay awake. And Joe, Joe's position within the facility, um, he's the only one that does what he does at my agency. But I also tell him, too, number one, your recovery is of tantamount importance, mm-hmm. right? Right. And, you know, we were just talking earlier. He, he, gets, he gets exacerbated when people, he's done it. He can do it. But he gets really exacerbated when people aren't putting forth an effort. Mm-hmm. He was in the same position. I get it. But he kind of. He gets it. And as far as talking about hope, guess what? You can recover. Mm-hmm. You can recover. We've seen dead bodies and we see all these signs on the yeah. street and we see it on YouTube or whatever. But the good news is you can recover. Engage in treatment. And when I say engage, I don't mean just attend treatment and sit there. Mm-hmm. Think about it. You have to be all in. You got to be all in. You have to mm-hmm. be. You can recover. You can. And, and Joe, I mean, your your story, I think, is incredibly inspiring because n- not only were you are you past the addiction, but the, the purpose now that life has, you said it yourself, getting up and going to work and, and being able to help other people out of that. I mean, you're in rescue. You're like the rescue mission kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Just yourself helping people one at a time to, you know, yes. out of that mm-hmm. thing. Not only can people recover, but they can they can find purpose and a real, uh, an amazing life on the other side of addiction. Yes. I mean, it's always, you know, it's always a possibility. And like she said, you got to work though. You can't mm-hmm. just, can't fall in your lap. You got to get up, go to meetings. You got to meet sober people, you know, meet friends that are doing the meetings. You can't expect to hang out with the same old friends and go to meetings and fake it. You gotta, you gotta make it. You can't, you just can't do it. It's it doesn't something have to happen first? I mean, you 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 uh, make sure I'm not putting words into your mouth. But at one point, you liked this situation of the drugs, and something really had to happen to say, you know what, this is no longer good for me. When you see those newbies coming in the door, I mean, they're probably they like you said, they don't want to be there. They don't want to get out of that lifestyle, do they? Not all the time. Not all the time, no. But mostly with like our clinic, and she, if I say it wrong, she can correct me. <laughs> <laughs> they make the phone call to come to they our do. clinic. I mean, it's not. So that's, that's step number one. Yeah, so they, that's a huge step. Mm-hmm. That's great. So they come. You know, so there's that seed there of they, they, want, want, it. It. they want something different. Yeah, yeah I'm, again, call. Call somebody. Here's mm-hmm. the great thing about Erie County. There's so much help out there. Mm-hmm. There's so much access to help. Again, I always use this kind of metaphor. If you like unicorns and you 
are addicted to opiates and the, there's a place for you in Erie County. Okay. <laughs> there's so many different types of treatment. Oh there's different modalities. Mm-hmm. Um, there's help. You just have to make the call. What about those parents? I, I again, you, you just, <laughs> you, well, you just kind of, you again, you're reading the, the obituary and you're just, your heart just pours out for the folks, for the families that are surrounding the lost loved one. And, um, and, you know, there's so much family dynamic that goes around addiction. Can we talk about that for a little bit here? And, uh, and, and because I can't imagine that the parent, for all that they want to do, they can't force that child to make that call. Can no, they? they can't. But what the worst thing that they're going to do is keep them in their addiction by enabling them mm-hmm. or making excuses for them or not setting healthy boundaries. Period. All right. So be specific for a second. Um, what do you mean by I that? I love you, son, but I, if you're going to continue to inject heroin into your veins and hurt yourself, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And you stick to the boundary. I love you. I love myself, too. I love myself, too. I need to lovingly <clears throat> detach from you until you can get it together in a manner of speaking. Uh, you have to so hard and that's the it's hardest so hard. conversation Listen, i say that and mm-hmm. um with all the parents horrific. it's the biggest it's the it's right. the thing that keeps people stuck the most <clears throat> yeah. family members that aren't willing to draw those lines correct and that family member is keeping them in their addiction yeah. uh, we have jennifer esper and joe courier of the esper treatment center right there on 18th and Peach, Andy Kerr is with us as well. I, I want, we've got two minutes. I want to make sure there's there's nothing else that you want to make, that you want to leave us with. Le- Jennifer, leave us with some um, some guidance and hope here. I, I think I, maybe just some positive inspiration. Um, you can recover. You just have to reach out. Tell somebody. I know you're embarrassed. I know you're ashamed. But you got to tell somebody. Let us help you. Let somebody help you. And that's it. There's, you can it's, recover. It seems that the, the efforts of the county to be, do this communication campaign is really helping release the stigma part so that we can have honest conversations so people can say, you know what, I'm having trouble here in this, right? I mean, Absolutely. And, and, uh, and again, uh, is, do you have a hotline? You have, uh, how do people get a hold oh, of gosh. you? Oh, gosh. Call 459-0817. It's... It, you can call 24 hours a day. The call will get patched to me if we're wow. closed. Call 24 hours. I take calls all the time. All the time. And, of course, there's the 211 if you're looking for resources. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and, Joe, uh, um, you know, your last words. As far as for that, for, that, for that person that says, you know what, I need to start somewhere, what, uh, what do you tell them? Get yourselves to a meeting. Reach out. Like Jen said, you know, call. There's a Narcotics Anonymous hotline, Alcoholics Anonymous hotline. Just call. Call the, the clinic you know, any time of the day. Just start somewhere. Take one small step. Yeah. And uh, and uh, ask, <laughs> I mean, if, if you, it, you know, and if you're a family member, you know, really, really try, you know, reach out. I mean, there's the Allen. Uh, I take the, calls from family members yeah. all the time. Even, just pay, call you, you guys, know, they yeah. just call. Hey, I need help for my kid. Okay. Yeah. Just to get advice or something. Yeah, to talk absolutely. To, or if you want to talk to somebody, call and ask for Joe. He's mm-hmm. again, he's such he's an amazing resource. It just seems like to me that these phone calls can be lifesavers. Just mm-hmm. just like we talked about Narcan, it's a lifesaver. But you know what? If we can jump uh, on the the side of recovery just by 
eliminating the taboo and saying, you know what, uh, it, it's either me or my child or my or my sister or brother or uh, or my friend really needs help to to kind of reach out. Thank you so much, Jennifer Esper. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Joe Courier. Uh, you guys are amazing. Thank you. Uh, and uh, uh, keep uh, you know again, we're saving lives. We're we're helping our neighbors. We're being we good neighbors, aren't we? Thank you for having us. Truly. Oh, we're, it's it's my pleasure. In this half hour, we want to talk to uh, one ministry's impact on changing people's lives out of addiction, and that is the Erie City Mission. We have with us Daryl Smith. He's the Chief Operating Officer and Director of Men's Ministries at the Erie City Mission, along with Annie Kerr, the Mission Chaplain. Welcome, Daryl. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We got it. So a little origin story from you. Did you grow up here, or how'd you get to Erie? Uh, yeah, I was born and raised in Erie. Oh, yeah. um, all my life went off to school to Penn State. Um, I did live in Delaware, a couple of other places, but then came back to Erie. What high school? Um, Academy. Okay, yeah. Absolutely. A lion. <laughs> a lion. <laughs> this is uh, not, not to say that you're old, but you're the, ori- in the, original, the original set of Academy. lions. The original Academy, right? Yeah, correct. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and, and so... You know, we're talking about the city mission and, again, impactful over 100 years. Right. Uh, you know, a little bit of the history, Billy Holiday, right? Yeah. Not no. Billy Holiday, Billy... Sunday. Billy Sunday. Yeah. Not, Sunday is Sun- kind of like a holiday. But not really. <laughs> no. but Billy, Billy Sunday, Sunday. In does the faith. Ten- it's a holiday. <laughs> in the, in the faith. Unless, unless you work for a church, it's never a holiday for, <laughs> for church workers. Anyway, right. uh, Shady and I can attest, and you and. Uh, um, no, but uh, Billy Sunday sets up a tent, has tons of meetings, is kind of gathering up the intoxicated, right? It, I mean, what's the story on that? So absolutely, one of the original missions of almost every gospel rescue mission has been going out and delivering those who were uh, so in Erie, it was a lot of the sailors that were wayward that would would get waylaid here or they would miss their boat out. And it was just a really rough port town. Mm. And so a lot of drinking, a lot of it downtown and the churches wanted to come up with the response. Um, Billy Sunday came, preached. Many got saved. Many tried to uh, repent from the drinking ways. And at that point, the churches of Erie decided to incorporate all together to support one mission downtown to deal with these individuals when they aren't open. You know, churches, Sundays, you know, Wednesdays. But, you know, the you know, uh, alcoholism is a 24 hour a day, seven day a week thing. And so they wanted to have a response ready um, from the churches. And so that's how the Erie City Mission was started. Now, I've had a long relationship with the mission uh, uh, since my time at WCTL as the manager. So we're talking 20, um, gosh, yeah, 25 years plus, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, back when I would go to the mission banquets, you know, uh, the, the, the folks that were in the New Life program were kind of older, right? Yeah. Uh, and um, you know they were there was a, usually an alcohol addiction or something like that there. When you go to the mission banquets now, 
the face of uh, the folks in the New Life program has changed, hasn't it, Daryl? It really has. Um, I started the mission in 2004, and 90% of the men there were either suffering from alcoholism or cocaine addiction. Um, about 2009, one day we looked up and we had a 21-year-old kid coming to be in treatment something we never saw. And so he was the first um, and his mom brought him there, hoping that we might make a difference within six months. We had interviewed probably another handful of young men under the age of 21 who were struggling with opiate addiction, heroin addiction. And it was really, you know, a stunning thing for us to see. We were so used to one particular population, one age group, that in a seven-year span, the average age of the New Life Program participant went, went, went from 46 down to 37. And so in seven years, for it to drop 12, you know, 12 years, that's a lot of young people coming through the program. And we weren't really equipped for we had to really scramble to get a handle on what is you know heroin's on the comeback what are these opiates you know these synthetic opiates suboxone um many individuals struggling with methadone which was a response by the government to try to help individuals uh, who were struggling with heroin and then it became a problem and so Mm -hmm. opioids or opioids which are anything synthetic or natural um just became a huge problem and uh, uh, the, you know, you had to respond to it. You were scrambling for it. And uh, uh, what were some of the origin? What were some of the stories that these these kids were coming to you? As? Was it uh, accidental, or did they have um, some kind of uh, gateway drugs? You know, were they dabbling in marijuana or yeah. dabbling in, in alcohol? So, <clears throat> so the primary gateway drug generally is, c- is cigarettes, tobacco. Absolutely. And then from tobacco, we're looking at alcohol or we're looking at marijuana. But primarily the first drug that most kids try is 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 nicotine. And so that's why we say cigarettes. So, yeah, most of us probably snuck out. So this vaping thing has got to be horrible for you. all. It's an interesting um, spin on an old addiction is what it is. They're able to make the, you know, the vape the vaping um, liquid so much more potent. You can flavor it now. You can determine how, you know, how much nicotine you want in it. But of course, because it's not a cigarette, they're able to market it as an alternative to cigarettes, something safer because it does, it's not, it's not tobacco. Yeah. You don't have the, the, there's no, not as much of the tar, the stuff that's bad for your lungs, those, but you still have the addictive nicotine, the actual, Absolutely. Absolutely. You can determine the level of nicotine that you want in the vaping liquid. And so many people are taking in three, four, 12 times the normal nicotine level by vaping. So, uh, I mean, I'll have, I'll have you weigh in on this whole recreational marijuana thing again, which is also obviously a gateway. Absolutely. Um, the, uh, I mean, do people walk in stoned? To the mission or or have an issue with with too much marijuana use or is that so, not a, really a thing so the, no, so so the potency of marijuana 
uh, is 25 times what it was back in the 70s. And so now they're able to, you know, uh, grow it differently. They are blending different strains of marijuana. They are adding uh, different things to marijuana. Marijuana is a a whole nother industry where it comes in liquid form. It comes in a paste form. It it is grown. But again, it is also engineered these days. And now that it's legal, you have the best minds in the country, in the world, you know, looking to make it, you know, as potent as possible. And so it is a challenge. Yeah. We're talking to Daryl Smith. He is from the Erie City Mission along with Andy Kerr. And if you have any questions, it's 679-1080, 679-1080. So let's explain to the folks, um, you know, the different levels uh, of uh, of care at the City Mission. Of course, you do have your Samaritan care, which is it was which is not uh, necessarily connected to to addiction, right? That is that is more uh, three hots in a cot or something like that, correct? Yeah. yeah. So the Samaritan Care Program is a sixty day emergency shelter for men aged eighteen and up. Uh, we have fifty six beds. Any uh, man who has ID or is willing to seek ID uh, can sign up by going through the coordinated entry program, uh, and they can stay to the, stay in the mission 60 to 90 days, depending on their circumstance. And they need to be clean generally, right? So, no, I would say that many of the individuals who are in our emergency shelter are struggling with either oh, mental are. health, okay. substance abuse, uh, poverty, lack of education. And so a lot of those things also contribute to this uh, idea that using a substance to kind of medicate what they're going through or what they are, you know, the lack of success maybe in their life, if hmm. we could say it that way. Um, you do have to uh, not be drinking alcohol to stay the night in the mission most nights. Yeah. When it's inclement weather, we are a little more generous with that policy. But generally speaking, you can't be drinking. But uh, if we drug tested the individuals in our shelter, we would probably find 50 percent of them e- easily uh, having some type of substance in their system. Okay. Okay. So, so there, so that's really kind of the, the first start, right? I mean, uh, that they're in emergency shelter if they need that. But then of course, uh, people enter the new life program. Please explain what that is and, and what are the parameters for getting somebody into that program? Yeah. So the new life program is actually an extension of the emergency shelter initially that when we were seeing all these individuals with substance abuse issues coming to us just for shelter and food and clothing, we decided that it was a good idea as some of them began to ask us for help that we would start a new life program and begin to allow those individuals who wanted to do something about their substance abuse issue to stay around the mission and to help out. And it really started out volunteering and helping to clean the mission and just, right? we don't want to go out. So can we please stay here? And so that was really the early stages and the impetus for, I mean, that they were the impetus for, but that was the early stages of the program. And again, it goes right to that idea that, you're changing context. You're changing. You're getting somebody out of that um, addictive context. I don't even know how to describe it, Andy. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just the you know there is a there is a system. If you want drugs on a regular basis, the people that you talk to, the places you go, the you know the the environments you're going to find yourself in, and if you want to to change behavior, you've got to take yourself. Go. We say. Well, I, and I learned most sure. everything from Daryl, but, uh, you know, like but you're on the right track. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Keep Thanks, going. Keep okay. going. <laughs> yeah. People, places and things. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. you've got to change those if you want things. You got to change. change the people. Got to change the places. Got to change the things yeah. you're doing. Absolutely. Wow.
We are uh, uh, working through the opioid epidemic uh, on our program here today. We're talking to Daryl Smith. He's the chief operating officer and the director of men's ministry at the Erie City Mission. And also Andy Kerr, who uh, is uh, one of our regulars here, but also the chaplain at the Erie City Mission. So let's talk about the New Life program. Um, You know, uh, what what are the what are the perimeters for somebody to enter into the New Life program? Yeah. So interestingly, right before the break, we were talking about the Samaritan's Care program and how it was kind of the impetus for doing something more for those struggling with addictions. Um, We began to take men from the shelter right into a new life program, uh, you know, with this with this desire to help them recover. We you know, we had the spiritual component. We were giving them something to do. We were going to try to help them through some of the tough times. And what we honestly realized was that taking people from the shelter of right off the street into the program was actually detrimental to their long-term recovery. Okay. And so we changed the program several years back where if you were getting into our program, you have to first go to a licensed 28 day drug and alcohol recovery program. Several things happen there. You get a psyche valve, and if you need medications, a, a, a psychiatrist is there to prescribe them. You get a physical, and then if there are any physical issues, you get those dealt with. You also get about 30 days to 60 days to really get uh, one sober and you don't have the obsession and compulsion to use. And if you're down at the mission, you're pretty close to downtown. So if Mm. you're still struggling with obsession and compulsion to use and it's right out the door, this is a challenge. So we would send them to rehab. Uh, They would have to complete rehab successfully. Now they are, they are also interviewed by our treatment team uh, members who then determine who may who which individuals are the best fit for the mission okay. those who are interested those who don't have too many challenges uh those who are able to keep up with the program we have 14 core groups and classes all have homework the spiritual growth and development and so a guy has to be you know relatively high functioning to go through the program um, and it has helped. We've certainly increased the number of people graduating, uh, people staying sober long term. We have great success. And I think we just had to be you know, nimble when we began to see what some of the challenges were dealing with the population off the street. So we now require that. So, uh, yeah. So maybe you can help me again. A lot of folks don't understand this environment. Uh, tell me about rehab, yeah. because um I mean, you hear you hear superstars going to these yeah. uh, uh, exotic rehabs out in L.A. and in Malibu or whatever. This is not what we're talking about here. So, so drug and alcohol rehab can go anywhere from fifteen thousand dollars for thirty days up to a hundred thousand dollars for thirty Holy days, Lord. depending on just how you know exclusive the rehab is. <laughs> and so, we just require that individuals go into licensed drug and alcohol treatment. Probably in the neighborhood of fifteen thousand dollars for a and thirty days stay. That, so we have a, you know, in Erie we have a um, office of drug and alcohol. You can go down there and be interviewed at Act One Fifty Two, uh, and they will determine your level of care needed, and then our county will fund drug and alcohol treatment for anyone who wants to go. Kind of what uh, Dave, Dave was Dave uh, talk, talking Dave about. Sander. Okay, gotcha. And uh, and you're finding that having that 29 days or whatever before going into the new life program kind of weeds out whether they're serious about recovery or not. Yeah, it really is instrumental for a guy to go into treatment, uh, determine, you know, you know what his challenges are. Does he have a mental health disorder? He needs to get on medication. 
Uh, is there a physical disability that's causing him? He may be in some pain that he's used to medicating. He may not be aware of some condition that he's had that he has that's going to make it more difficult to recover. Interesting. It's difficult enough to try and find uh, some new thinking patterns because addiction is a brain disease. It is a thinking disease. And so once those challenges are there, you really want a guy coming out as clean. Number one, no substances in the body. Uh, the obsession and compulsion is lifted around 90 days. And so if you get a guy in up to 90 days, really there's not a lot in the way of them staying sober other than the day-to-day challenges that you and I deal with every day. We just choose not to medicate our way through them uh, as that became a habit to medicate their way through all challenges, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. It just became something that they used and being under the influence became their norm. And so now they have to adjust to a whole new norm and the new life program being nine months in duration allows an individual to work through a lot of those challenges, to develop tools, uh, to get involved with 12 step, to begin to seek, uh, you know, what is spiritual to them. We provide drug, we try drug and alcohol classes, uh, CBT, but we also do spiritual growth development through with the Bible and some of the other programs that I mean, some of the other classes that we offer. We're looking at this very holistic approach. Every gentleman, you know, we feed, we try to have uh, nutritious meals. Mm-hmm. We try to promote exercise, relaxation, new learning. These are all the things that has to happen that have to happen within the brain for it to begin to set new parameters for living. They are mm-hmm. so used to the old ones. I was going to, can you explain the difference between detox and rehab? People hear those and, you know, aren't always sure, like, do they happen in the same place or what's the process if somebody wants to recover? Yeah. So generally when someone is addicted to a substance and he has a dependence on a substance, detox is a way to kind of get the substance out of his body. Most substances are out within a 72 hour period barbiturates, marijuana, those things take longer to get out of the system. And so detox is a place to go and be medically seen that how close are you to some type of breakdown uh, physically, emotionally or or emotionally. uh, And then you kind of get your feet under you. It's really three to five days as, as long as detox normally is. From detox, though, they try to get you into what they call 3B, which is licensed drug and alcohol treatment. 21 days to 60 days, generally something like that. You're going to get drug and alcohol education. You're going to see that psychiatrist. You're going to see a doctor. You're going to get on medications. You're going to start eating and sleeping properly. You're going to start getting proper nutrition. You're going to start getting some education and retraining. And that's really the start of a recovery program. But even 28 days, most people will tell you is not nearly enough to have even changed your mind. I was going to say, you you hear about going into rehab, but it, it, it's just a beginning. You really have to, you you really need that next step. And that's where the new life program comes in. Talk about what, uh, what the city mission does for the women that, uh, that are there because we're down about last minute or so. Yeah. So the city mission also has, uh, the grace house and the grace house is a long-term transitional program for women who are suffering with drug and alcohol issues as well. They do very much the same thing that we do in the new life program. They do the interviewing process. They require people to come in from treatment. Uh, They're actually going through a kind of change right now, and they're looking to change how the phases work in that program. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Juanita Smith would be someone you might want to get up here as well to get on the radio. Um, But they're doing a lot of same, you know, addiction, again, 6,000 opiate deaths, um, across uh, Pennsylvania, I'm sorry, across the country yearly, 
55% of the men in the New Life program are struggling with opiate addiction, uh, synthetic and otherwise, and they're only creating more opiates, you know, synthetic that are more dangerous, that are more challenging and um, more difficult to get men into treatment. Um, it's just a different uh, disease right now, and it is affecting uh, a much, much younger population. And this this whole thing with, uh, I mean, just with, like you say, with the younger folks dealing with this, it, it is kind of a, a shocking deal. Are, are, there, are there room for the older gentlemen that are trying to recover? So if I mean, you only have so many beds, right, Daryl? Yeah. So if you're looking to be entertained, uh, come up to the New Life program and meet the 21 year olds trying to get along with the 50 year olds. <laughs> <laughs> and so it keeps it interesting. The generational but, change, huh? Wow. Uh, but being so young, also this idea of arrested development, where they don't even develop emotionally or psychologically yes. before they're already addicted, and so. When you get them there, you're expecting them to or you're hoping that they will see that there's another way to live. But they have they're you know, most of the time they're 15 emotionally and psychologically 21 year olds. Wow. Yeah. 